it happens. One day you wake up and everything is different. The place you thought you knew has changed. You become a stranger in an unknown landscape. You grieve, you feel disoriented. Sometimes you want to give up. You wish it could be like it was before. But then you discover the overarching truth starts small like the young sapling on the forest floor, but it grows, it gains altitude. And you realize the ultimate plan of God cannot be thwarted, that your part in this landscape has purpose, that he is still moving in and through the unfamiliar place you find yourself in. In this unfamiliar place, you can find your hope and your purpose. All you need to do is embrace the exile. Good morning, welcome to Essential. A question for you as we kick off this new series. How many of you have ever read the book Rip Van Winkle? No, I am talking to Dutch Americans here, right? <laughs> Rip Van Winkle is a book written by Washington Irving, first published in 1819. This edition is from around 1900. It tells the story of a Dutch-American villager in colonial America by the name of Rip Van Winkle. Rip was a kind guy. He donated his time voluntarily serving other people, um, but he didn't like working to profit his own family. And so consequently, Dame Van Winkle, Mrs. Van Winkle, is portrayed as being harsh and constantly critical of Rip's laziness. After one argument, Rip decides to abscond into the forest with his dog, Wolf, and his rifle. He spends the day there. At the end of the day, he gets up. He's longing to go back home, and as he descends the mountain, he bumps into this old guy who's dressed in these kind of very old Dutch clothes. The stranger asks Rip for help, carrying what I think is a keg of ale, basically, a barrel of beer, for want of a better term, up a mountainside, and Rip, being the kind of guy he is, yeah, of course he obliges. Well, they carry to the top of the hill, and they get to the top of the hill, and Rip sees a number of people playing nine-pin at the top of the hill. They offer Rip a drink, he agrees, he sits down by a tree, and he falls to sleep. He wakes up and notices that his dog, Wolf, is gone, and his rifle is now basically old and crusty. He wonders what's going on, so he makes that journey home, and as he gets to his home, he notices that his home is now old and decayed. He heads to the, to the sleepy village inn, and when he gets there, he, he sees that this village inn has now been transformed in a, into a boisterous political activist group. They ask him what his position is philosophically. Rip responds, I am a loyal subject of the king, and of course that doesn't go down well in post-colonial America. Rip is then approached by a woman holding a baby and asked the question, hey, have you heard of a guy by the name of Rip Van Winkle? The response he receives is that Rip disappeared 20 years ago and hasn't been seen since. Rip realizes that 20 years has passed, and the story ends with Rip moving in with his now married daughter and his grandchild and living his days telling his story to anyone who would listen. Rip Van Winkle. Irving's book is fascinating for the way it combines a lot of powerful themes. Tyranny and freedom, constancy and change, volunteerism and profit. But what strikes me with this story is how 
the work of the ale in putting Rip to sleep for 20 years, emerging into a very familiar but very strange land, is actually there, I think, what we are experiencing as a result of COVID. I think COVID is doing the same thing. 245 days ago, Michiganders were told to put their life on hold and we began thinking, right, that this would be some kind of hiatus, some kind of brief intermission from all of the stress and the chaos. And we embraced it like that. Days turned into weeks, weeks have turned into months, and we're still waiting for any kind of semblance of normality. And if anything, the results of this week only seem to delay and polarize things still further. What do I mean? We were told around here that the, the kind of number of cases for COVID to trigger kind of schools going online was about 150 positive cases per million. We've been above that for weeks. But no decision has been made because people wanted to see what the outcome of the election was. COVID has been like one very long press of the pause button. And we're still waiting. As true as that is, though, on the other side of it, I feel like COVID has sped things up. Issues I thought I had a few years to deal with and now piling up one on top of the other. For example, five years ago, we invested in digital technology. And our ultimate plan here was not to produce digital content, but to forge digital connections. And so about two and a half years ago, I started having conversations over a plan to make digital connection a reality. I figured that I would need about two years to convince people that this was essential. COVID has done it for me. See, across our land, people are no longer talking about a return to church, but what is coming out right now is a return to what they call the hybrid church. Yes, things seem to have paused, but believe me, when we emerge from this, things will be familiar, but ever so strange. Thanks to COVID, the time I thought I had, I have no more. The only good thing is the long papers I thought I would need to write to the elders have now been written for me by Barna, and I think they would do it a little bit better than I would. Then there's the impact of COVID on church attendance trends. Trends that showed a steady move in the wrong direction for the American church are now projected to speed up. For example, did you know that during COVID, one out of every five regular churchgoer, that means that they would regularly attend church before COVID, one out of five has never attended a service either digitally or in person during this pandemic? 20%. Many are predicting that a massive number of people will never return to church at all. The reality is, whether we like it or not, COVID has sped up what we all knew was coming. And we are now going to be, and this is my point, a convictional minority far sooner than we ever thought possible. Now, let me illustrate this. You're looking at a, a chart, <clears throat> excuse me, that I got from Ed Stetzer. Ed has been looking at attendance trends for many years, and this is a chart tac uh, tackling relig the religious landscape in America from 1972 through until 2018. Now, what stands out here is the steady rise in the no-religious group, also referred to as the nuns. For quite some time, people have been looking at how the nuns are basically rising up from within the so-called Christian ranks. In that time, the evangelical church, however, has actually been standing firm. And this has led to the conclusion that it was the nominal Christians who, for the most part, were becoming nuns. And as nominals become nuns, their mindset shifts to having far more in common with a secular worldview than it does with the Christian worldview. 
And basically what that has produced is that the evangelical church, the American church, is now more evangelical than it ever was before. Now, I know that in doing something like this, some of you are eating all of this up, and you can't write down fast enough, and some of you are like, duh, get to the point. The point is this. American culture is polarizing because people are becoming more secular and more devout at the same time. We saw that this week. The result is basically the middle is eroding. Now, what we're seeing, therefore, is not secularization. We are seeing polarization because, as we've been saying at Central since 2015, May the 3rd, 2015, I stood up and said this, we are missing the middle. How many of you remember that sermon series Brad Gray and I did called Kingdom and Empires? The first message was the missing middle. And I warned about this. I basically stood up and said, whether it's politically uh, ignoring the middle class, after 2016, everybody realized you can't win without the middle class. That's the Rust Belt. You can't win without them. Whether it's ignoring the middle class politically or even theologically, we miss the middle. What do I mean theologically? Have a look at the creeds. Whether it's the Athanasian creed, whether it's the Nicene creed, Whichever creed it is, all of these creeds talk about the birth of Jesus. They talk about the beginning. They talk about what? The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and they ignore the middle. They ignore his life, and consequently, for years, we have presented the gospel as basically meaning something when we reach the end of life. It's kind of this ticket to the heavenly amusement path because Jesus makes little difference to life at all, and as a result of that, we've seen an increasing separation of this idea that we can believe something and do something else. Why? Because the middle has evaporated. The life of Jesus has evaporated, and so we stood up in 2015 and said, look, we need to realize that the middle matters. Life matters. And as a result of that, we made a commitment to invest heavily in the medium-sized church in America. Why? Because the middle matters. We lose the middle at our peril. When we lose the middle, life polarizes. And so, denominationally, Pastor Lynn will know this, Pastor Mike will know this, we go into churches and into conferences, and it's always about the small church asking the big church for more money. And who gets overlooked? The middle. We miss the middle at our peril. And this is what's happened. The middle is evaporated. Now, let me explain it like this. Think of America as split up into quarters. A quarter of the population is basically non-Christian. That basically means that they're either atheists, have a different religious affiliation, 25%. 25% of what we would call cultural Christians. Cultural Christians, they would answer a survey, what religion are you? They'd say Christian because, well, America is a Christian country, right? 25% are like that. Another 25% are what we would call congregational Christians. They're basically uh, people who would, we would call Christian people, right? They come to church at Christmas and Easter, uh, baby dedication maybe, infant baptism, that kind of stuff, but they don't necessarily live their life according to that religious conviction. 25% in America is like that. The, the final 25% of what we would call convictional Christians. These are people who actually believe that God's Word, the Bible, is God's Word, and it has the right to command our devotion. And what it says there, we need to live like it. So we give like it. We live like it. We marry according to it. We try and do everything according to it, convictional Christians. What's happened is... The the two in the middle, the cultural Christians and the congregational Christians, are shifting more in their mindset to the non-Christian community. And as a result of that, this is the reality. Convictional Christians are therefore going to be a minority in the emerging America, and due to COVID, we're going to get there a little sooner than we thought. This diagram, again, I received this from Ed Stetz, uh, illustrates the point. Previously, you see, you had non-Christians up there, you had a culture divide, and there were these Christians all on the other side, and we lived as this religious majority. And here's the point. 
As a religious majority, you can actually wage war in a different way than you can on the other side when you're a convictional Christian and you're in the minority. This is the point. If we are getting to the future far quicker than we would ever have thought, we cannot, as convictional believers, wage war the way we used to. The initial results of this week reveal that to be the case. We can't wage war the way we used to. We can't. And so this is the question. How do we engage with a nation when our views are so polarized? How do we, as a conviction of minority, live out our faith in a way that fulfills the ministry that Christ gave us, which is essentially passing His blessing, God's blessing, onto this nation where His rule and reign invade earth and are experienced on earth just as it is in heaven? As we begin to think about this in this series, the key question we need to ask is, okay, God, if your word directs my, is supposed to direct my thoughts and actions, where do I go in your word to find out how I behave in a season like this? And the answer is we can go back to the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, there was a season of time where God's people became a convictional minority when they were basically invaded, overrun, and conquered and taken in exile to Babylon and also into Assyria. We can go back to God's Word and we can realize that there was a season where God's people experienced the same thing. So we're going to, in this series, we're going to go back in answering that question to to the Old Testament. That's where we go, but how do we, how do we do this? Well, we do it by remembering what our calling is. Our calling is to extend the rule and reign of God to ensure that the rule and reign of God is experienced on earth increasingly just as it is in heaven. We are called to bring God's shalom. It doesn't matter where we are or what we experience. That calling does not change. How we do it as a conviction of minority, has to change. But what we do doesn't. And as I was thinking about this and thinking, how do I explain this? The idea came to me. I, I think that what we need to do is we do this by embracing our role as medics. Medics. Now, those of you in the medical profession will realize that there is a difference between a paramedic and a medic. A paramedic is someone trained to medically stabilize people through various interventions. A medic can be a doctor. But by medic here, I'm actually thinking of a doctor who works with the armed forces. Now, since the Geneva Convention was signed, the army has not typically armed medics since they were protected under international law. So they would have these insignia on them that would mark them out separate from other military people, and it was basically should have been illegal to shoot at them if they had the insignia on there. The problem was that in the wars like Afghanistan and Iraq, those wars have mostly been fought against insurgencies, and these insurgencies don't actually follow the Geneva Convention. And as a result of that, a lot more medics are actually being armed with rifles and pistols. So to be a medic, your primary responsibility is to what? It's to heal. What is your secondary responsibility? To fight. See, as a religious majority, our primary responsibility, we felt, was to fight, to stand up for what's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's still going to be a time for that. But as a conviction of minority, ask any minority in this country and they will tell you, you fight the fight in a very different way. I think God is calling us, if we love this nation, to assume our role as medics. What does that mean? It's an acrostic. Firstly, it means one of the first things the medic has to do, a medic has to learn how to mourn. This seems strange. A medic has to learn how to mourn. A very recent study of 800 military medics, which was the first of its kind, 
suggested, get this, that medics suffer from higher rates of depression than any other soldier. I've read that 90% of soldiers who are injured on the battlefield die. A medic's job, very simple, reduce the number. Keep more people alive. Medics are more exposed, therefore, than other soldiers to seriously wounded and to dead fellow service members. Unlike hospital doctors or nurses who rarely know their patients, medics have the added pressure of being close to the soldiers that they are trying to keep alive. And when one dies, medics often face self-doubt, something that they must hide or they risk losing the platoon's confidence. But here's the thing. This research showed that medics need to know that if they don't deal with that pain of loss, if they don't deal with it, then it's going to cause, cause them PTSD much later on. And so as hard as it is, medics have to find ways of dealing with their pain. Now, it's at this moment I want to stop kind of teaching and I want to be a pastor for a moment. I think that's the way that some of you are feeling today. You're hurting. You're worried. You're overcoming with doubt. You're rightfully asking yourself, how quickly is this left turn in our nation going to be? How thorough is it going to be? You're worried. You feel the land you love has been lost. Can I suggest to you that the first thing you need to do in order to move into the future is to face your pain? You need to grieve what you've lost. Only by facing your pain can you ever be fruitful in the future. And I want to say this to those of you who feel like this. As long as God sits on the throne, whoever wins the election will not determine who wins the crown. What determines whether we win the crown is our faithfulness, even faithfulness under duress. Grieve what's been lost. Don't keep the pain on the inside. That's the first thing a medic needs to do, mourn. But secondly, and this is so important right now, expect. Expect. Medics trust the battle plan. Medics know the pain is guaranteed in their service. Part of the training practices that people are going through in medics is realizing that it has to be the case that a medic actually faces real patients before they get on the field. How do they do this? But they know the pain is guaranteed. But even knowing the pain is guaranteed, they still have to go in there trusting the battle plan, knowing and believing that these plans are right and will get them to where they want to be in the end. I want to say this as Christians. We hope in a king who is alive and in a kingdom that will ultimately prevail. You may be disillusioned today, but this is not a time for the church, for the Christian, to be convinced by its own failure. There is no room for that right now. See, the church had this mentality. If you look back in history in America, the church had this mentality in the 60s and the 70s. As all of these legal challenges, Roe versus Wade, and everything else were going on, what happened? The church had this kind of failure mentality. I say to some people who complain about the present that maybe the reason the present is so bad is because the church didn't expect God to work in the 80s in the way that he did. What happened in the 80s? Church attendance grew, but it took two decades of struggle for that to happen. What's my point? We do not know what God is going to do, but we don't doubt that the battle plan the mission field in America has changed, but the sky is not falling in, even though so much is changing. You know why? God has promised this. I will build my church, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against it. In a season like this where you're grieving, you have to take what you know to be true about God yesterday, and you have to apply it to what you know about God today. We do not know what the future looks like. It looks like a left turn is coming.
That makes me nervous for all of our work in, in the schools. It makes me nervous in so many things, but I'll tell you what, I know this. I know this. For as long as God is on the throne, who wins the White House will not determine who wins the war. God's got this. God's got us. We need to believe that. Thirdly, and this is where we get to our posture. This is where we get to our behavior. We need to discern. The reality is we need to make wise decisions on the field of battle. See, when a medic is on the battlefield and patience then, right? The soldiers are coming under fire. A medic has a decision to make. Do I care for those that are injured or do I actually fight? What, what do I do? Heal or fight? Now the book, the book answer to this is to engage the enemy and stop them from hurting more soldiers. Despite this, medics will sometimes decide to do what is called care under fire. That is that they are caring for patients while they're still trying to fire at the enemy. But what's the point here? The point is the medics are taught there are no textbook answers on the field of battle. Every situation is different. Every day is different. Every fight is different. Every injury is different. And a medic is taught, look, whether you fight or whether you heal, you need to decide. You need to decide. You need to be wise. And listen to me. In the emerging America as convictional Christians, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the same thing. We can't always fight every battle the way we fought them in the past. If we're no longer a religious majority, we can't fight the same way. But whether we fight or whether we heal, whether we are called to, to take our stand or to bring God shalom is something that requires each and every convictional Christian to descend, uh, depend rather more fully on the Holy Spirit than we've ever depended on Him before. There are no textbook answers on the battlefield. It's not as easy as that. Fourth, again, behavior, posture, we need to influence. I put this down as we need to influence from the second chair. What does this mean? Well, medics seek to save the lives of others without ever having the ultimate authority and while only following the instructions and the orders that have been given to them. As a convictional minority, we are likely to find ourselves in a similar situation on so many occasions. Even now, CEOs, the ones who staff people think make all the decisions, are required to follow the policies and the directives given down by federal government, some of which collide with their religious convictions. They too, even a CEO, leads from the second chair. As a convictional minority, we have to learn how we influence when someone else sets the agenda. How do we do that? We have to learn how to do this. And I'm telling you, in the Scriptures, it shows us how to do this. Lastly here, and I think this is the, the biggest shift of all, we have to be willing to contribute. See, in days like this, when everything was changing in the 60s and 70s, the church had this kind of uh, mentality where people would come in order to be safe from the world outside. And when we do that, we lose the culture battle, we lose influence, we lose the ability to bring the kingdom of God in a powerful way. This is not a time for the church to step back. This is a time for the convictional Christian to step up and to reach out. But how we do this is that we have to recognize that we bring God's blessing on a place as a citizen of another land. I know coming from a non-American, this is hard to hear. But listen, medics bring healing while serving in lands not their own. 
As hard as this is, as convictional Christians, we have to come to accept that this place, this nation, is not our eternal home, and that we have been sent here as ambassadors of another nation and of a higher power. That doesn't mean to say there's no rule for patriotism. There is. But it does mean to say that our role is to contribute to ensure that the vision of heaven is experienced more fully on earth. And so mourning, expecting, discerning, influencing, contributing are the behaviors that we're called to practice. And this is the thing. When we look back at the Scriptures, we see these five behaviors a core part of the behavior that God's people in exile modeled. This is what God's people did when they lived in exile in the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. How many of you have ever heard that song, Boney M, by the rivers of Babylon? Maybe you heard that? Maybe we should do that next week because it's actually a psalm of the exile. By the rivers of Babylon where we sat down, right? What are they doing? They're mourning the land that's been lost. The psalms of the exile is actually how God's people process their emotional pain. The feeling of being abandoned, the, the feeling of being overlooked. And so next week, Holly Brown, Pastor Chris Brown's wife, excellent teacher, executive pastor in a number of churches, leading female leader in the church in America is going to be here, and she's going to talk about how to do that. How, how, how do we process our loss? Because only by processing our pain can we ever seek to move into a future that God has for us. What about the sermon? Well, what about the book of Daniel? <laughs> the, the book of Daniel is how a guy that God raised up had to make decisions about what to allow himself to be appropriated to culturally. Remember, he changed his name. There were other things he allowed to happen, but there were certain things he refused to do. Daniel knew where to draw the lines. He did that because he didn't have the ultimate authority, and he recognized that he needed to live as a convictional minority. So in this series, we're going to jump into Daniel, and we're going to look at how do we live as a convictional minority knowing how to draw the lines. As parents, we know this. I've said it before. We can't fight every battle at home. Otherwise, our home becomes a war zone. Church, we can't fight every battle in this nation. Otherwise, this nation continues to be a war zone. There are some things that are just not worth fighting over. Do you know what those are? What are those for you? What about influence when you don't have the authority? Well, let's look at the story of Esther, shall we? In the story of Esther, we had the story of a woman who leveraged her influence, even though she had no authority, and the result of that was that she spared the lives of so many people. Even in the book of Esther, we have the story of someone who had the conviction of faith and was able to leverage that influence in a way that saved people's lives. What about expectation? Well, let's go to the prophets. Let's have a look at how the prophets encouraged God's people to live even when they were under, under duress, even when they were in a strange land. There's an amazing story in one of the historical books that God's people have been in exile for 37 years, I think, and their hope was waning. And then they hear that the king who they thought was dead was alive and was actually eating at the king's table. And all of a sudden, they had hope. Church, when we look at the Old Testament, we will find so many stories that will encourage us to believe that even when the day seems so dark, our hope is alive because our hope rests in a king who's alive and invites people to come and sit at his table. And then this exilic mindset, we again see it 
in the prophets, but we see it fleshed out in the book of First Peter, where we are told that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we are, in fact, ambassadors of another place. I think as a conviction of minority, we need to embrace this. This is my final observation today, and I think this is important. As we seek to practice all of this, I think this is where it begins. In exile, when we look at the, how all of these people behave, we recognize that they valued engagement over outrage. They valued engagement over outrage. As a conviction of minority, Christians will need to do the same thing. Christians, you see, are called to be salt of the earth, not gas on the fire. We're not supposed to make things worse. We're supposed to bring God's healing and God's shalom. And when we dig into the stories of God's people living as a convictional minority in this strange land, He calls them to engage positively, yes, standing up on occasions when they needed to, but He calls them to engagement over outrage. I want to take you to Jeremiah 29 for this. I'm going to put the text on the screen in a second, but how many of you could quote Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to bless you, to prosper you, not to harm you, right? We know this. It's quoted on wedding cards, engagement cards, right? Birth cards. You've got it on baby dedication, infant baptism cards. We know this. And all too often we've said, well, we've got to realize that's for specific people in a specific context. But what that context was, was a people who lived as a conviction of minority in exile. And in order to get that blessing, God actually says in the previous verses, from verses 1 through 10, that there are certain things that you must do, and there's one thing that you must avoid doing. In order to get this blessing of verses 11 and 12, practice the positive, God says, avoid the negative. By the way, day eight of our 30-day kindness challenge today, avoid the negative. Avoid the negative. What, what was the positive? Well, this is the positive. This is what God says that they were to do positively. This is what God is calling us to do. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried from exile, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, this was a letter that the prophet Jeremiah was compelled by God to write to God's people in exile because they were becoming disillusioned, wondering what God was doing. So God says, listen, I can hear what the religious leaders are telling them to do. Jeremiah, take, take a piece of paper, write scroll, pen, write a letter to them. And there are a number of letters that he wrote. And this, this is specifically what God told them to do. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increasing number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you prosper prosper too. In other words, in exile, God says, believers, don't condemn. Don't condemn culture. We don't copy culture. We don't condone culture. We don't consume culture. But we create a new one. We create a new one. How? Through our presence, through our influence, and through our prayers. That's what God wants us to do. Yeah, I understand how tempting it is to believe in our own, you know, our own misery, to think that everything has failed, everything is doomed, but no, we have to expect. And God says, listen, what we need to do right now is to engage. Instead of rage, engage. Engage. In this season, you see, look out for it on your social media feeds. Watch for it. History repeats itself. This is the positive that God was calling His people to do. Why did God need to say it? Because there were religious leaders on the ground, in exile, that were calling for the exact opposite. Rage. Outrage. Fight. Don't heal. Is it right to stand up and fight? Yeah. But knowing when to fight is the mark of a discerning people. And so this is what we read in, in the very next part. This is what God had a problem with. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your interpreters of dreams, your mediums or your sorcerers who will tell you what were they saying. You will not serve the king of Babylon. They prophesy lies to you, so that, uh, to you that will only serve to remove you from your lands. 
I will banish you and you will perish. See, there's a time to fight and there's a time to engage. There's a time for righteous rage and there's a time for engagement. And God in, the, in this book, I wish I had more time to jump into this, but I don't. Okay, I'm a minute over already. Jeremiah 23, 21, uh, 23, 32, 27, 15, 28, 15, 43, 2. These are all times when God speaks against the prophets who are telling them outrage, rage, protest. It's not always the right response. Now, the content of their rage isn't recorded, but it is abundantly clear that what God tells His people to do in verses 5 through 7 be there. Be present. Seek the prosperity of the city. Pray. Influence. is diametrically opposed to what other religious leaders were saying. And I'm warning you, church, seriously, we will lose our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren if we don't engage and we simply rage. We will lose them. Convictional minorities are called to live a salt and light seeking the shalom of the whole. We are called to replace rage with engagement. Now, what does this look like? As I was thinking about illustrating this, I was taken back to a book I read a couple of years ago, very good book on this, Ed Stetz's book, Christians in an Age of Outrage. Some of you may want to look at that. And he tells a great story in that book about Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller. In 2017, Princeton Seminary awarded the Abraham Kuyper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Life to Tim Keller. Princeton was once basically a mainstay of Orthodox Protestantism. But although Keller won the award in, award in recognition for both his work as a well-respected theologian and as an urban pastor, as soon as his name was announced, there was controversy all over everywhere. Two reasons. One, Keller did not ordain women as pastors. So that irritated a large group of Reformed people. And secondly, Keller had a traditional view of marriage and of sexuality that irked some of the Reformed tradition who actually believe if God ordains everything, he ordains that too. And so there was outrage. Now, no one was questioning Keller's influence. In 2018, Forbes included him on the list of the world's top 50 leaders. Yet, they objected to him. And so, basically, in response to the uproar, Princeton Seminary, Princeton University basically revoked the honor. It backtracked. What do you do in, a, what do you do in an environment like that? This is where Keller was brilliant. In an example of humility and graciousness, Keller suggested Princeton not give him the award, but they actually allow him to hold his lecture so that he can foster dialogue and conversation. The university agreed, and everyone basically was saying that his lecture was very well received. Now, there's two points to this. Firstly, this story illustrates the problem, right? The problem we have in our country where there is no middle and there's the polarization between secular and devout, when something comes up that we disagree with, often the initial response is outrage. And the point that Keller was making is that outrage silences any hope of meaningful conversation. Let me be clear. Convictional minorities never win like that. In a secular state, Christians who hold to historic doctrines are unlikely to be welcomed when that's what we do. Now, this is how Stetzer continues the story, and I'm going to read it from the book. This is what the second part of why Keller's response was so good. Keller, Stetzer writes, defended Christians' right to hold fast to their beliefs and explain the danger in trying to silence them. In his lecture at Princeton, Keller noted the importance of transcending insular group mentalities that breed fear and suspicion. You can't, Keller said, win, um, disagree with somebody by just beating them from the outside. Did you hear that? You can't simply disagree with somebody by beating them from the outside. 
Then he continued, you have to come into their framework. You critique them from the inside and within their own framework. Listen to me. The Bible's positions, ethically and morally, make sense. Why are we so afraid of discussing them? That makes sense. God's Word makes sense. Keller's point is we can trust And if we engage rather than outrage, we get more meaningful conversation. You see, Keller got to the root of the problem. As the world is fragmented into independent groups with their own worldviews and moral frameworks, these factions invariably judge others by their own standards. We judge unbelievers by our own standards. How can someone live up to a standard that they've never experienced? How can they do that? When others don't live up to their judgments, they have a visceral reaction to them rather than trying to understand their position. Here's the point that is being made. When we respond to outrage with outrage, we ruin our witness. We ruin our witness. Convictional Christians won't win the war for souls if we don't remember that it is our primary responsibility to heal. When we fight before we heal, We are not effective ambassadors of Christ's love. Now, let me also say this, and I'm wrapping up with this. Please, please, please do not hear anything that I am saying as a passive acceptance of what is wrong and a refusal to fight for what is right. You did not hear me say that. What I am saying is life as a convictional minority means that we fight differently as to when we were a religious majority. You can't fight the same way. Engagement is more vital as a convictional minority than ever before, and this is my plea to you. We need far more convictional Christians in schools, on school boards. We need far more Christians leading small, medium, and large businesses than ever before. We need far more Christians in local, state, and federal government than ever before. Why? Because when the country goes wrong, Christians step in. We don't step back. Why? God's holiness is more contagious than sin. Did you hear that? God's holiness is more contagious than sin. It's more powerful than sin. And if we step in and fight the right way, we will yet see this nation turn back. But how we do it, we step in. To be within requires us to change the method of our warfare. But to be within and among requires that we know who we are among. We are unlikely to be amongst other convictional believers in a lot of the places that we will work and live in. Those days are fading. Not necessarily in Holland. We've still got some time here. We've still got a culturally Christian and a congregationally Christian town. But mark my words, the number of churches that will close their doors in Holland as a result of COVID will be far more than without COVID. It's changing here too. And so with all of that said, this is my question through this series. Are we willing to engage with this nation as it is? Not as we would like it to be. Are we willing to engage with this nation as it is, not as we would like it to be? Have we got confidence that convictional people who accept their role as medics, bringing healing, but also standing up and fighting where appropriate and where right, can still make a fundamental difference in this nation? I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe in this season, God wants His church to believe this with all of their heart. So that's my question. As disillusioned and disappointed as you are right now, are you willing to accept this nation for what it is? Now, why did I put that question up there? I'm looking at some of my CR friends here who I can't point to because obviously it's anonymous. We'll, we'll probably know where that question comes from, right? It's part of the serenity prayer that we pray every week. See, we've realized when we're working on our stuff, we've realized that to get anywhere requires that I accept where I am. Unless I accept where I am, I can't move to where I need to be. 
So as we begin this journey, looking at that exile mindset and how it can apply to us as we navigate our way into the future that God has for this nation, in confidence and hope, but as we do that, it begins by accepting where we are as a nation. Are you willing to accept that today? I'm not saying we have to agree with it. I'm not saying we have to like it. I'm saying that the future begins by accepting it. Now, some of you thinking legal challenges, yes, all of that will be done too, I know. But are we willing to accept it? What I'd like to do to close is just ask you to stand and on the screen. Could you stand with me? On the screen is the serenity prayer. We pray this CR each and every week, and there are major parts of this that I actually think apply to each and every one of us. And what I would like you to do is, if you, if you recognize that God is saying, hey, I, I really want to bring you to the point of giving you hope for this nation, then what I would encourage you to do is just say this prayer with me. Let's say it together. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. God's people said, amen. amen. As you go through this week, try and remember this. Let's avoid the negativity. Let's avoid the negativity. Be careful on social media. Be careful with what we write. Be careful with what we say. Stand up and fight for what is right, but let's do all things on the basis of discerning from the Holy Spirit what is good, right, and proper to do. Now, with that said, thank you all so much for being here. I hope you're still glad you were, and we look forward to journeying at this series through with you. Next week, Holly Brown's going to be here. Great day of just helping us learn how to sing with the exiles. Join us next week. Thanks all. Have a great week, and we'll see you all again soon. God bless.